money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success. Some people use it as the key to reach their goals. And some people use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it and how to grow it. For years, women have been telling their beauty stories, their success stories, their health stories. Now we want to talk to women about their money stories. Welcome to Tilly Money. Sula Chamberlain is the founder and director of Star and East Organic Whole Foods and the Broth Bar and Larder. Sula also has a few other feathers on her hat, including a foods cooking instructor, a health coach, a wellness blogger, and a former corporate lawyer. My bank account just flat out, but the minute I shifted that scarcity mindset, the more abundance just started flowing into my life. Today's episode is brought to you by our principal partner, Mortgage Choice. 2020 has been a challenging year, so Mortgage Choice and its national network of mortgage brokers are on a mission to help Australians restart their 2020. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or investment property or want to refinance an existing home loan to get a better deal, let a Mortgage Choice broker answer all your questions, show you what's available and do the legwork to help you restart 2020. Visit mortgagechoice.com.au or call 137762 to speak to your local broker. Welcome to Tilly Money, Sula. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Maureen here, Tula, and between the three of us, we're going to shoot and answer questions over the time that you've generously given to us. And, uh, Perfect. And, and so I'm going to start with the first question. So you've got Star Anise Organic Whole Food and the mm-hmm. Broth Bar and Larder, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but you've had quite a different life before you started this mm. business. So it'd be great, great if you could tell us a little bit more about what we'll call your former life. <laughs> yeah, that's right, my former life. So I started my career as a lawyer because at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And I remember when I finished high school, I read the syllabus for all the uni courses available at the leading universities in Queensland. And the courses were fairly limited compared to what's available today, I'm sure. And while I've always had a real passion for health and wellness, courses like naturopathy or herbal medicine or nutritional medicine weren't available back then in Queensland. And I toyed with the idea of conventional medicine, but for some reason it didn't really draw me. So I ended up doing a double degree in commerce law and being the nerd and A-type personality that I am, (laughs) I did super well, got first class on as a university medal, and I went on to work as a lawyer for 10 years, five years at Australia's leading law firm at the time in banking and finance, and then five years in-house at Telstra in their capital markets. Mm. And look, while it didn't make my heart sing in the sense that I couldn't say that I was super passionate about um, law and I found the subject matter quite dry, you know, I remember you know, long days and long nights and eating cereal for dinner and working mm. most weekends. Mm. At the same time, I did learn a great deal and I have no regrets. It taught me the ability to summarize large volumes of information, you know, to write letters, to be articulate, to value doing a thorough due diligence. I have a super high attention to detail, you know, it taught me critical and analytical thinking, you know, being open-minded, having curiosity to step into both sides of the debate mm. and basic business skills that come in handy in setting up any business. So that was my life, free what I'm doing now. Mm. Well, we've trod a very similar path, 
um, right. solar as well. And without a doubt, the kind of training that you've had like I did as well, it really does set you up for business, albeit that business can still be hard and can surprise us no matter what our qualifications are. And sometimes qualifications can be great, but business is another another dimension altogether. So what, to, to let's concentrate then on the business um, owner within you. And was there a tipping point, like you were leading this high-paced, you know, highly successful mm -hmm. law career and at a very high level and congratulations, you know, on what you achieved. But what was the tipping point that really motivated you then to make the shift towards your business um, that provides such healthy products and such a healthy focus on the way people live? Yeah, so in 1999, after working a few years of incredibly long hours in a pressure cooker environment for law firm, eating takeout food, being indoors in artificial lights and leading a largely sedentary life, I had a breakdown, a physical and emotional breakdown. My body just couldn't cope anymore and I ended up in hospital True. and I was out of action for about two months. My immune system was shot. I had recurring migraine headaches from neck pain and lots of osteocelial issues. Now, this was a really big wake-up call for me. I knew my body wasn't happy with the way I was treating it and I had to take a different approach, but I honestly didn't really know what that looked like. You know, back then there were very few health and wellness books or mentors or podcasts or apps like they, there are now. I just had to kind of muddle through on my own. And in some ways it forced me to tap into my intuition. And I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I was just so disconnected from my body and my intuition, largely because of my lifestyle choices, which were literally designed to numb me down, numb me off from my body and my intuition, like things like pharmaceuticals and painkillers and cheap takeout food and refined grain diet and lack of movement and sleep and being in an unhappy relationship and nature divorcement, you know, drinking tap water, using conventional personal care products and cleaning products with their full of toxic ingredients, stress, you know, all the things that we call normal today, yeah. but in fact lead us onto this path of unconsciousness and further away from who we really are. And I guess in the last two decades for me have been an incredible journey of discovering who I really am and what makes us tick and thrive so that we can ultimately be the best possible version of ourselves and lead our best life. You know, but that 26-year-old lying in that hospital bed, you know, having wet herself from all the fluids pumped into her, had no idea what she wanted to do with her life. And all I knew is that I had to make some nourishing changes um, so what I did was I made a few baby steps that profoundly altered the course of my life. So the first thing I did was I decided to leave the law firm and I went in-house at a corporate instead with shorter hours and more work-life balance. And then secondly, I intuitively started Iyengar Yoga, which was radically alternative back then. Mm -hmm. And that was life-changing for me in that it made me discover just how disconnected I was from my body, it raised my consciousness at the physical level at first and then opened up this really beautiful soul-nourishing community for me. And then the third thing I did is I started bushwalking because once again, I intuitively felt drawn to immersing myself in nature. Now, no one told me to do yoga or go bushwalking, but it just felt right. Yeah. And from there, I started doing some amazing hikes around the world and really getting out of my comfort zone and seeing third world countries really taught me gratitude like nothing else. And it was my time trekking in Nepal that 
led me to learn and explore Tibetan Buddhism and spirituality. So I slowly started feeling that I was becoming a more balanced and whole person, you know, physically, emotionally and spiritually and moving towards who I really was. And in so doing, I started feeling more acutely the disconnect with my work, with my relationship, um, with modern society as a, as a whole and really struggled with, you know, fast food and with the consumer-driven, materialistic, wasteful first-world society and its core values. You know, a lot of it just didn't fit right for me. I was yearning for something more meaningful and significant and real and I started making more conscious choices around the food I was eating. So I kicked all the processed food and was making more homemade meals you know, I got a water filter, I did daily yoga practice, I started kicking all the harsh chemicals in my personal care products, I tried to get out into nature as much as I could. So I was definitely on the path to wellness, but I didn't realise that I still had a very long way to go, especially with all of my osteoscelegal issues and my hormonal issues, like I wasn't ovulating. Um, and that's when my second big wake-up call happened. It was about a year after the birth of my first baby at 33. Mm. And I was vegetarian at the time um, leading up to his birth and I was vegetarian all throughout my pregnancy and breastfeeding and we were also raising our son as a vegetarian thinking that we were being super healthy. I mean, the government very much steers us towards a low-fat, high-grain diet. So I thought I was being super healthy by being vegetarian. But when my son ended up in hospital at 11 months with bronchial pneumonia and rounds and rounds of antibiotics, I started questioning that approach in the conventional model of I'll just give you more and more antibiotics. Yeah. And I started questioning our diet. And through my naturopath, I learned about the works of Dr. Weston A. Price um, and what traditional people in all traditional societies the world over ate pre-industrial revolution and the importance of pastured animal fats and animal products like organ meats and wild seafood in the diet. And I resisted and resisted this approach for a good year because I thought we were being unethical eat animals and I now know how ignorant an argument that is mm. but once we started eating a more biologically congruent diet you know what I call a real food diet or a species appropriate diet or a traditional whole food diet we went from barely surviving to thriving all just from changing our diet and so what I did is I just I got back into the kitchen and I started making uh, bone broth and chicken liver pate and slow meals and sauerkraut and activated nuts and refined sugar-free world treats because these things didn't exist in Sydney 13 years ago. Yeah. And I just felt so vibrant and alive and, you know, emotionally and physically resilient on this food. It was like it literally turned on my DNA. Wow. And I became so passionate about sharing my story with the world and especially how healthy my second baby was on this diet. And I should never really been sick in, in 12 years. And so I, I started making all this food because no one else was, was making and selling it in Sydney and persistent friends insisted on buying the food and then through word of mouth it was friends of friends that came knocking at my door and the circle just kept expanding and expanding and expanding and I guess the light bulb moment for me came when I was standing in my kitchen you know with my babies around my ankles making pate for friends who put in their orders and I thought to myself oh crap this is exactly where I'm supposed to be I can't imagine myself returning back to work as a corporate lawyer I'm going to pursue you know organic whole foods and nourishing my family and my community and then over the years, one mother's helper slowly turned into 16 and I had no choice but to open up a retail store, which as you said, you know, broth bar and lighter in, in beautiful Bronte. And I started uh, doing cooking classes because I felt it was very much my honour and privilege and obligation to empower women to be able to make this food themselves in their home. And I started health coaching because 
I could see that people were still so confused with all the conflicting information that is out there and had this thirst and hunger to take their health to the next level. So what I did was package up 20 years of meticulous research and education and put it together in a really comprehensive pack. And I sit down with people and do one-on-one health coaching and explain to them what I call the fundamentals of robust nutrition and where to get everything from and what to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And just basically putting all the jigsaw puzzle pieces together. And from there, I you know, was asked to do a lot of public speaking. And I've been touring Australia for the past couple of years with a holistic dietitian doing my group food as medicine talk so I can share my message with a broader number of people in one hit. And I guess you know you're on the right path when it just feels right, when you're pulled to do it and when you you can't put the pen down and you cannot not do it. Yeah. So and I just I guess I just feel so blessed to be doing this work because it's helping people change their health and hence their lives at the grassroots level. You know, they can kick their medication, they can become more independent in their healthcare. You know, when they look and feel uh, vibrant and healthy and happy, you know, by making lifestyle choices that are biologically congruent, not only for them but for the next generation and the planet and honestly what is more important than that there's um a couple of things that come out of that for me in particular and be interesting to see what claire has to say too because i read the other day and i hate quoting things without attributing to the source but listening to you then it's just popped out at me and says that there are two significant days in a person's life one the first one is that the day you were born And the second is the day that you discover your purpose. And Mm. as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that you're very much along that path because you understand Mm. your purpose. And in terms of talking about independence with your health, you know, and Mm -hmm. encouraging people to understand about the importance of their health being an asset and where a Tilly Money, we're growing this platform. And it's a similar, it's almost like a parallel to what you're saying too, Sula, because we're helping women to understand the world of money and we're wanting mm-hmm. to help close the gender pay gap in particular and the gender wealth gap generally. And we talk about, you know, women in, and we will continue to, to educate women about all the different asset classes that you can invest in. But Without a doubt, and it's something that my dad in particular has said to me over the years, that you can have all the money in the world, but your health is your greatest asset. And that's what, to me, I'm hearing that you're saying. But how do you suggest that people, you've had a massive mindset shift in your um, journey, you know, on this path, and how do you suggest that other people, how do they make that mindset shift to think of their health being so important and it's something that they do daily over the long term? Yeah, so I firmly believe that your health is your greatest asset because without your health, you have nothing. It is so much harder to be even happy, I discovered, when you're not healthy, okay? And I think get people to think of health by using this analogy, the concept of a health bank account, which I know that you will appreciate it, silly yes. money. So yes. you're born with a health bank account at the time of your birth, which is the sum of your parents' hard-coded genes and the expression of their genes at point of conception. And throughout the course of your life, 
when you make nourishing lifestyle choices, you're investing in that health bank account and the health bank account grows. It's like making good financial investments and your investment is growing. And conversely, when you make poor lifestyle choices and, you know, are inadvertently uh, exposed to toxins, you're basically making withdrawals from that health bank account, okay? And what happened with me is I just, you know, I was born, unlike my brother, I was born with a really, really low health bank account because when my brother, my brother's like 14 years older than me. So he was born when my parents were only 18 years old. They just moved out from Cyprus. They'd been, you know, not that they would even have called it that at the time, but they'd been, you know, living a very biodynamic lifestyle uh, in Cyprus. So they had, you know, really good expression of their genes. And so when my brother was born, he was born with a really, really high health bank account. And even though throughout the course of his life, he makes some pretty poor lifestyle choices like smoking and drinking and not really caring what he's eating. By the time he dies, he's still going to have quite a high health bank account. I mean, he's, he's using it up and mm. he's sapping it up just like supermodels do. But he's probably going to, you know, die with a fairly high health bank account. For most of us, though, that's not the case. So when I came on board, you know, some 14 years later, my parents had engaged in lifestyle factors that weren't really, they didn't appreciate at the time, but in their best health interest. So, you know, that was produced by white refined bread, white refined sugar, Mum was dealing with a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of stress in her life. Was on, you know, huge amounts of pharmaceutical medications, daily morphine injections for migraine headaches. So, her, you know, what the genes that she passed on to me, the expression of her genes weren't optimal at the time of my conception. So, I was born with a really low health bank account, and that's probably the case for most people in modern society today. Well, it's something, and then, it's uh, something too that um, Sula that I don't think a lot of people appreciate, and. I read an article um, by a, a close friend of ours, the um, well-known cardiologist, Dr. Ross Walker, who's very broad-minded and certainly embraces you know, all types of natural health and medicine. And he said that people just do not realise that, you know, say a woman who's pregnant um, you know, would start, say, if they're a smoker, you would hope they wouldn't smoke, you know, if they were a drinker, mm. whatever, um, because they think the baby's there, but it's their pattern before the pregnancy, well before the pregnancy, and that's what you're saying. 100%. You know, that, yeah, that can dictate the, the health of a baby. Of yeah. Mm. yeah. So our health has actually less to do with our hard-coded genes and more to do with the expression of our genes, the expression of our yes. parents' genes at right. the point of conception. And so, you know, I was born with not a very high health bank account. Add to that, you know, a couple decades on a conventional diet and then a vegetarian diet that really lacked animal fat and I went you know and and other poor lifestyle choices like working myself to the ground and you know in a law firm with long hours um and I went into the red and so when you go into the red and you're forced it basically forces you to sit up and listen and go okay this is actually a wake-up call I need to change my lifestyle um and that's something within my control and so over the past two decades now I've slowly slowly built up my health bank account you know, to the point where it's really high and I, it enables me, cushions me from blows that inevitably happen in life, mm. I can sort of bounce back. You know, if you've got enough money in your bank account, even if, you know, the fridge blows or you need to replace your car or something like that, yeah. your bank account is strong enough and resilient enough to withstand that. It's okay? like the and emergency what, fund of health, isn't it? Exactly. Mm, yeah. And I sometimes think, you know, like it's the height of human ignorance and arrogance 
who thinks that we can make biologically incongruent decisions and thinks that we are invincible and that it's not going to catch up with us. Mm, You know, at some point it will. And it's the little things that you do every single day that add up to make the biggest difference. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure you must come across it often, but you... One of these things you always hear people say is that being healthy is just too expensive, that they can't afford it. So I would love if you could myth bust that whole concept for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, when people say, oh, being healthy is too expensive, I guess the classic response back to that is, have you seen the cost of cancer recently? <laughs> and I know, I know that's an extreme example, mm. but I do know that the cost of being unhealthy is far more costly yeah. than the cost of staying healthy. I mean, even minor health conditions can rack up big bills, let alone all the time and energy that you've got to expend to get yourself back on track. So that's the first thing. It's like, well, what's the alternative, you know? So, you know, if you think of it with a car and saying, oh, it cost me too much to maintain my car and get it serviced and, well, what's the alternative? You're going to, you know, let it, you know, not maintain it. Yeah. The alternative is you're not going to have a running car. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And then secondly, I get people to think of the cost of organic food as the cost of real food. That is the real cost of food. Mm, true. So fast food made by big business, you know, what I call junk food, ultra-processed food, fast food, that is often subsidised by government and it doesn't actually reflect the real cost of producing it. So I don't even actually think of it as food. Mm. So instead, we want to support farmers who genuinely care and nurture the environment and the animals and the plants that they raise on it. And so that is, that's the real cost of food. And thirdly, I say to people, have a look at what you're spending your money on. Remove all of the processed foods and the cheap quality takeout, you know, and redirect those funds towards real whole ingredients that you use to make homemade meals. I mean, eating out is expensive. I save it for special occasions. Yeah. And fourthly, I say to people, look, um, shop at farmer's market. So, you know, you're cutting out the middleman. You know, buy your produce and your eggs at farmer's market. Um, buy at your butcher shop the, the fattier, bonier cuts of meat, which are not only healthier, but they're often they're cheaper, yeah. you know. Yeah. Make a bone broth. I mean, bones are, you know, still relatively cheap. Yeah. You know, make, uh, you know, buy organ meats like liver. Liver is still really, really cheap and it's the most nutrient dense food on the planet, bar none. And you can, you know, turn that into a pate. Um, things like sauerkraut and kombucha, they have become so prevalent on the market now with so many, you know, when I started out in Sydney, you know, making all this 15 years ago, I, I was the only, you know, kombucha manufacturer, beef and fats manufacturer, bone broth manufacturer. Like now it's just the market's flooded with it. And the and that supply basically causes the price to come down. You know, mm. you can get kombucha for a couple of dollars now somewhere. Obviously, you still got to read the ingredients, make sure there's no nasties in it. And just getting back to the basics and making really simple homemade meals. I mean, if you price up the cost of making some scrambled eggs and greens for breakfast, you know, dinner is just meat, three veg plus a cup of broth. And lunch can be like leftovers or just, you know, veggie sticks or salad with quality protein. Mm. And if you're not snacking, because we're not designed to snack, we're designed to be hunter-gatherers, not snack snackers, and you're just eating those two to three really big square meals a day, you know, with some filtered water in between, it really isn't that expensive. You know, I think a lot of the expense is also the um, packaged na- organic 
snack food, yeah, which just, you don't really need. I mean, okay, they're okay for, you know, special occasions and treats, but, you know, your staple food should just be, you know, the food your great-great-grandparents ate, you yeah. know, pastured meat, wild seafood, pastured eggs, uh, you know, full-fat dairy if you can tolerate it, you know, fruit, veg, some nuts, seeds, for herbs, you know, just keeping it really simple. It's almost like everything else is just excess, isn't it? And um, yeah. it's funny, a point you made there about shopping locally and sourcing your foods, and that is the real cost of food. It mm. does have a real economic advantage in a sense as well to to contribute properly to our local society, our local producers, and and, and you're right, without devaluing food. Exactly. We've just become, become so disconnected mm. with, from food and where we get it from. So one of my missions is to connect people back with food where did the food come from what's being done to it you know it's source and it's processing what we call provenance it's so important and yes you know forging those beautiful bonds and relationships with your local community like when you shop at you know local organic stores or produce stores or go to farmers markets and you know you form these really beautiful community connections which is just priceless well, it's many ways, um, Sula, it's how we used to live, you know, well, exactly. years ago, you know, how, how our grandmothers 100%. and, and um, exactly. some of our mothers lived. But let's talk for a moment about you as the business owner and how did you find all that when you got into it? Because obviously you've got these wonderful ideas, this great passion, and that certainly drives people along, you know, a, a path that nothing else can, you know, can drive you that fast when you've got passion. But in terms of just the nitty-gritty of running a business, what can you tell us there? Truth be told, I started Saranis Organic Whole Foods when I was still married and I had two babies and so I had the financial support of my husband. And Saranis Organic Whole Foods started as my passion project to heal myself and my baby. And I never, ever set out to start a business. And I think the reason why it became so successful is that I never did it for the money. I did it because I genuinely believe in the power of food as medicine and the health benefits of the food. And I wanted to, therefore, help other people improve their health in the way that it improves my health and my family's health and to connect other people with real food and teach them how to make it. Now, in my case, I guess profits followed passion. Mm. And the business grew in just tiny baby steps. I never bought anything or employed anyone until I really needed to do so. I certainly didn't start out with the 30 employees I have today turning over you know, seven figures, you know, with a retail store and multiple income streams, I literally started making a simple batch of rocks, mm. pounding sauerkraut, rolling bliss balls with my hands, activating nuts and selling them to friends in paper bags. And then you take one step and then another step and then another step to make it look and feel a little bit more professional or more efficient. And you know when to take that step when you literally feel like you're working yourself to the bone. And if you kept going, doing what you're doing, you would start resenting the business. Because at first you wear all of the hats, but as the demand for your products grow, you start feeling stretched in a way that you never thought possible. And that's when you decide to employ another helper or hire a bookkeeper Mm. or rent a space because you're literally bursting at the seams or automate a certain process or outsource something that you're finding so tedious or that somebody else can easily do just as well or almost as well um, as you can. And I ended up becoming very good at delegating responsibility. And at first, it's so hard, just like Mm. a mother handing her baby over to a babysitter, feeling that no one else can look after that baby as good as you can. 
But in order to grow and to be able to do other things that you feel cool to do, both personally and professionally, you need to hand over the reins at some point. And even if people don't actually do something as well as you, no matter how much you train them, then sometimes you just have to accept that that is good enough because you can't do everything. And what I do is I just keep for myself the things that I love to do or only I can do that makes my business unique. So for me, that's my social media, writing the menu for Gross Bar and Larder, public speaking, running my cooking classes, writing my blogs. I'll never outsource those things. Now, if you're in a financial position where you can't leave your current job in order to pursue your real passion, then yes, it's going to be tough for those first few years when you're either living off savings to launch your passion project or you're juggling two jobs and you might need to drop one or two days at your existing job and hence, you know, you're, you might experience a drop in income initially in order to get your passion project off the ground. Mm. But I feel you need to take a long-term view of it. Would you rather be in a vocation that you're not happy with for the rest of your life, earning you know a comfortable income, or would you rather make sacrifices for the next four to seven years so that you can ultimately live the life of your dreams and hopefully earn an income that exceeds your wildest dreams? Very and true. I know which one I would do. And, of <laughs> yeah. course, this really depends on your risk appetite yeah. and how much you loathe what you're currently doing. And mm. that, it's that little voice inside you that's going to guide you on that one. Great and I advice. guess the good news is that everything's reversible, you know, everything other than, I guess, the decision to have kids once you, you know, you've got the kids, you can't reverse that when they're born. But everything yeah. else is reversible. Like, if you're not happy in your new business, try something else. If you're not making money after, you know, I say four to seven years, try something else. Mm-hmm. If something isn't working, then, you know, we pivot, we change, we tweak it. Mm-hmm. And so just on that, because as you mentioned, you have a business, many business aspects, um, and you have young kids, plus all the the meal prep on the side, what would be your best tips for making time to do those things that you love? Uh, it's, it's not easy and it's a juggle and some days feel more messy than others. So I think just appreciating that no one's life is perfect. And as a classic A-type driven personality, I never feel that I accomplished enough in any given day with so many fingers in different parts. I always feel to some degree that I'm stretching myself thin and never doing justice to anything. So for anyone out there thinking, oh, she does it all so effortlessly with ease and grace, uh, no, that's not real life. <laughs> yeah. No, and one thing I've become better at over time, it's probably not so much managing time, it's managing stress, so managing stressful situations and mm. putting issues into perspective because you just get so used to grenades going off that you just kind of in some ways kind of take that in your stride and um, I guess I have a loose routine but at the same time I'm flexible to you know to bend and flex when I need to go with the flow especially on school holidays when things just go out the window and I try to prioritize spending time with the kids every day yeah but even then you know as a business owner there for me there is never such a thing as a real day off especially when you love what you do so much and when your work and your personal life are so enmeshed and intertwined mm. um, um you know the, the division between the two is just it's almost impossible like i'm always you know checking emails responding to people sharing what i'm doing you know um and i'm doing all this thing like five minute grabs here and there in between being a mum and making meals and doing the laundry but for me you know making three nourishing meals a day is a non-negotiable that's yeah. just like always part of my day and it doesn't have to be fancy or time consuming and in fact my craft is teaching mums how to make homemade meals that are just really simple, quick, easy, as well as delicious and nutritious. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I guess the next thing 
in my day after breakfast is movement. So doing that as soon as I can after breakfast because otherwise it just won't ever happen <laughs> throughout the day. And I guess a good day for me is one where I'm not racing around in my car, but I'm actually sitting down in front of my PC getting work done. And I'm a really big believer in having a physical to-do list, yeah. um, you know, on paper and then just like the kinesthetic aspect of just crossing someone off and feeling the satisfaction of that when you cross something out when you've done it, I think really helps me having that to-do list to get things out of your head and onto paper. And I guess, you know, my philosophy with raising kids is, you attend to their needs, but then you get on with your life. And, you know, having said that, you still want to leave time to play and have fun. And I guess I just accept it and know that my to-do list will never get all the way through the list throughout the day. There's going to be new things that pop on there faster than what I can cross off. And I've just, I guess I've just made peace with that. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I end up, you know, driving yourself crazy if you don't. So new things popping <laughs> on your to-do list, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess new things popping onto your to-do list, I kind of reframed it as a sign of a creative person uh, who embraces life with gusto. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that my time is in demand and I have a to-do list, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, useful in society. Mm. And I guess to complicate things, I'm also a single mum, so I wear the mother and the father had at home, but I just... I've accepted that that is my choice mm. and pursuing all these different businesses is my choice because that is true to who I am. Yeah. Um, and I think you might have just touched on one of these, but do you have any things that people can do for their health that don't cost them any money? Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of things people can do that don't cost money. So, for example, I mean, when it comes to food, obviously, um, you know, food costs money to buy, but, you know, you can grow some of your own food, at least your herbs. You know, and gardening gets your hands, you know, covered in that beautiful microbial soil that is just so essential for health and so nourishing and healing on so many levels. Yeah. And in terms of movement, stretching, walking, especially with resistance like on soft sand, you know, doing interval training like sprints or, you know, what I do, the seven-minute workout, just Google the seven-minute workout, you know, dancing to music, these don't cost any money. Yeah. Um, sleep is free, you know, trying to get at least seven hours of sleep and you know, I've got little sleep hacks like, you know, make sure you turn off your Wi-Fi at the modem every night to really give your nervous system a break. You know, put your phone on airplane mode at night, avoid screens a couple of hours before bed, and, and then throughout the day having, you know, little periods of rest because um, rest is very different to sleep. So we're not designed to be go, 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 go all day. We're designed to have like punctuated periods where we can just sit even for, you know, a minute or two and just contemplate or focus on our breathing. And I guess that the next thing that's free is breath work. Yep. You know, just being conscious of your breath and taking deep belly breaths, not shallow breaths. And um, mindset is hugely important to your health. So, you know, creating a greater sense of calm and of consciousness and concentration through meditation, or if you don't want to call it meditation, just sit and focus on one thing, whether it's your breath or body sensations or a mantra or do a guided meditation. And I think cultivating a positive mindset, it's not only free, but it's one of the most important, if not the most important thing you can do for your health because I think that toxic negative thoughts are more toxic and damaging to the body than the most toxic food. So what you say to yourself and really catching yourself out when negative thoughts crop in and healthy swapping them with a positive mindset is just so important. You know, also just, you know, finding that sense of not only connection with others but connection with ourselves. So really asking yourself tough questions to get to know who you really are and whether you're being true to yourself and living a life that is congruent to you and not 
what society or so and so wants you to do or be. So um, true. I can see, I, I yeah. can see Sula a big billboard here with a big sign that says "Vote One Sula for Health and Tilly for Wealth." You know, because we're we're kind of a perfect match in what you're talking about and what um, Claire and I and the team are putting up on Tilly too. Yeah, and I, I guess I'd like to say the other thing that's free is immersing yourself in nature because nature is where we belong. You know, we're designed to work, live, and play outdoors, not indoors in built environments in artificial lighting. So. Spending time bushwalking is free. You know, spending time at a local park or at the beach, these things are all free. So, you know, health is very much multifactorial. I talk about the eight foundations or eight pillars of health and the vast majority of them, you know, movement, sleep, breath, mindset, environment, uh, fun play connection, they are all free, which is awesome. It's just because it means that you're in control of your health and it shouldn't cost you too much money. Yeah. Um. Just on that, on money again, where did you learn about money growing up, Zola? Oh, I think you know, I've never asked me that before. <laughs> I guess implicitly through osmosis, yeah. through my parents. So Greek migrant parents escaping poverty from their motherland in the 1950s. Mm. It was strongly ingrained in me, sometimes a little too much, um, about the value of money and how hard you need to work for it and the importance of economising. Yep. And, you know, in the 1980s when interest rates were sky high and dad couldn't afford to borrow money uh, to build a house, I just saw how hard he worked to save up enough money to build our house one room at a time. <laughs> and I saw how mum would buy things in bulk or when they were on sale to save money. And we didn't live extravagantly, but I always felt I had what I needed and mum would never skimp on food. Like we always had plenty of that and that was always prioritised. Yeah. You know, we didn't go on a lot of trips. In fact, I only went on one family overseas trip growing up. And wow. I just accepted that. But that's just normal. And it was super special uh, because it was such a big deal. Mm. Now, for a while there, because of mum's poverty and scarcity mentality, I too carried that legacy on. And especially after my divorce, I went through a period where I was so fearful that I wouldn't and couldn't survive financially and there wouldn't be enough to go around for me. And I ran stories in my head Oh, who am I to think that I can pull this off or run a business? So I had to do a lot of work on myself, you know, listen to a lot of podcasts, work with energy workers, body, you know, workers to really shift that mindset into an abundance mindset. Because what I discovered was that the more I held onto the belief with white knuckle grip that there wasn't enough to go around for me, and the more I was like so careful and super tight with what I spent my money on to the point where spending money on anything seems like an extravagance or an indulgence. Yeah. My bank account just plateaued. But the minute I shifted that scarcity mindset and took the foot off the brake just a little and was more relaxed with how I spent money and I just started enjoying the process of spending money as a natural and enjoyable part of living a balanced life. And the more I generously gave to others, I noticed a beautiful thing happened the more abundance just started flowing into my life. Mm. And people say that the opposite of fear is love, which I agree with, but I also think it's faith, faith and trust. So I started just having faith and trust that everything will be okay financially and really allowing that to resonate. That's not to say that, you know, you throw caution to the wind, yeah. but I think, you know, spending money is a little bit like Goldilocks. You just got to find that sweet spot of not too little, not too much, but where it's just, just right and you just, <laughs> end up viewing 
money, just as a source of energy and just yeah. something that, you know, what goes around comes around. If I give, I'm gonna that's going to come back to me tenfold. It's funny you say that, um, Sula, because the philosopher Goethe says that whatever you do, begin it now because then amazing things happen and provenance comes in to introduce you to people and opportunities. I'm translating Goto, but opportunities that you would never have experienced if you didn't make that first step in the beginning. Mm. 100%. So if I say to people, you know, what do you want to do long-term? And they, they say, this is what I want to do long-term. I'm like, well, why don't you start that now? Yeah. Um, and they make excuses like, well, if you know what you ultimately want to do, you want to get, you know, get from A to B, start it. As soon as you start it, the more experience you'll have doing it. Definitely. Um, and what would you tell 25-year-old Sula if she would listen to your advice? It's interesting you say if she'd listen <laughs> because the, the timing of the advice is everything, right? Like people have to be ready. Yeah. So I don't know if she would have been ready, but what I would say to her, a few things. Firstly, I would say make decisions based on love and not fear. And not based on what society or your parents or so-and-so wants you to do. Because every decision made out of fear will unravel. And every relationship entered into out of fear will unravel. Mm. And I've experienced that firsthand. Mm. The next thing I'd say to her is start listening to your intuition. So we've been taught with our schooling system to think from the head up. Okay, so I would be advising her, to pay just, if not more, attention to what's going on in your heart, okay? So giving that a little bit of relevance, not just what's going on in your head, like, you know, how do you really feel, like sort of feeling into decisions and does that feel right, you know? Um, I would tell her to not be afraid to follow a different or alternative or, you know, unconventional path if in doing so that is true for her. Yeah. And I would also tell her that, our health has less to do with our hard-coded genes and more to do with epigenetics, our lifestyle choices, our environmental choices, and that to start understanding what environmental and lifestyle choices profoundly influence your health. And that's when I went on to coin what I call the, the eight foundations of health. So, so to really understand that vibrant health is multifactorial, there is no one panacea and to really engage in nourishing lifestyle choices and to really try and eschew the toxic lifestyle choices. For Sula, from listening to you throughout this podcast, you know, and I'm sure Claire will agree that I feel the deposits in my health bank account are growing. Already, yeah. Already, and uh, I thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to get down to um, the broth bar and larder again and get some of those activated nuts, particularly the pistachios. <laughs> and uh, thank you for your time, and we really look forward my to talking pleasure. to you again on Tilly. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Your hosts this week were Maureen Jordan and Claire Osmond. Thanks to Ixon for our intro music. See you next time.